You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. First Kings 19 this morning, let's look at the scripture. We've been studying the life of Elijah, and today we'll be introduced to Elisha, a little different. And if you're familiar with the story, we come to a place where after God has invited Elijah to unload his burden and to plead his case, he then commissions him to go, verse number 19, so he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphath, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. This is the word of the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. I'm sure all of us here have had days when we started our day, we had no idea how that day would end. Some twist that we didn't expect, that we never saw coming, happened. And it was a time in our life that we'll never forget that day. Sometimes we wake up expecting nothing and finding tragedy, and sorrow. A phone call. An appointment. Diagnosis. We never saw it coming. We woke up that morning not expecting that. And yet it came. And it changed us. On other occasions, we wake up not anticipating the joyful and delightful surprises. Three months ago, I think, we were at home, and my oldest and his wife FaceTimed us. Then we had no idea what the FaceTime was for, but they called and said, listen, we want to talk to you. And I said, what's going on? And Kim and I were up in the bedroom. We had the phone there, and they said, you're going to be grandparents. And the tears flowed, and the excitement, and the joy, and it was, it was wonderful. We didn't expect it. And now they do something different. You know this gender reveal thing that happens, right? Um, And so they had this gender reveal. And it was really important to me because I needed to know whether I was going to be a grandpa or a grandma. I wasn't sure how that works. And I'm going to be a grandma. So that's baby girl. We don't know what to do with girls, but we're going to have a baby girl. Joyful, wonderful surprise. And sometimes we wake up, and the day is just so unexpected, so surprising, that we would have never guessed this is how the day would turn out. Ken, how many weeks ago before you bought that car of yours, that that Mustang? A week ago or so. Ken has wanted this, this 1998 Ford Mustang Cobra his entire life. It was at the auction, and during the auction, that car came up, and it was beautiful. I mean, it was 
what do they say about cars? That they're yeah, mint, and if they're all all the stuff, Travis, are they what? What? Numbers matching. Okay, numbers were matching. Whatever that means. Uh, the numbers were matching, and and Ken said, I I've got to have this car, and and he's waited. He bought it. So thrilled. Him and Joanne were driving around. Did the top come down on that thing? Oh my goodness, midlife crisis, and. Uh, <laughs> And they were loving that car, and they had the car, they, they, they drove around, they showed some people, so excited. They parked in their driveway that night, went to bed, and in the morning when they woke up, woke up, the car was completely totaled, totaled, 11 hours. Some of you are laughing, it's sick, actually, you guys are mean. And what had happened was, when the officers came that morning, they said to Joanne three times, where did you roll this car? And she said, I didn't. Where did you roll this car? I didn't. Where did you? I'm not lying to you. And what had happened was a kid in a truck was flying down their street so fast, went airborne, landed on top of the truck, and drove away. It was destroyed. Ken, did you see that coming? Nope. <laughs> nope. Gone. Not even a day. 11 hours. And this is life. And I think all of us this morning could take one of those categories and certainly relate to it. We never forget. This is how Elijah started his day. No idea what was coming. Let me introduce you to Elijah this morning. I think it's important to understand who he is as we get into the text and get into his life in the future. He is the son of Shaphath. Um, His name literally means God is salvation, or God, his salvation. And and we might read that and think, okay, that's great, no big deal, what does it matter? But it does matter. Because Elisha is from the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel has been entrenched in idolatry and Baal worship for years. And so now we have a young man whose name is God is Salvation. And what it tells us simply is this, that his family, they were a spiritual, godly family in the midst of a culture that was depraved. This is important. It's very important. In the midst of this culture, there was a family that was spiritual. Let me just go on a a rabbit trail, and I will be back, I promise. But the church is losing her children. The evangelical church of Jesus Christ is losing her children. It is not uncommon now to see our kids go off to college and university strong in their faith, so we think, and then when they're done, they are done with all of this. I have a friend, David Haskell, who did a study on churches in Canada, why why they're dying. I think it was a several-year study. And they came to some real conclusions that I I think are insightful. But along with that study and other studies, they tried to track the kids who grew up in evangelicalism, who after college, university, still had their faith. And and these five things were common, that 80% of these kids still 
loved the Lord, still served him after university. Would you like to hear what they are? Yes. Well, you're going to anyways. Number one, for all of these kids in their families, the word of God was prevalent. It wasn't just sitting on a desk all week long. They talked about, they read, they, they memorized, they looked to the word of God. Number one, the Bible was in their home and not just sitting, it was active. Number two, they prayed. And not just rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. They certainly prayed for meals. But these families prayed for everything. They prayed in situations. They prayed before tests, before exams, in difficulties. They prayed together. A third thing that was common for these families is this. Their parents weren't jerks. And I'm serious. I know, I know, I know. But you know what I mean? They weren't people who were like, you're going to do this, and this is what God says, and you're going to blah, 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 It wasn't that. They were parents who loved Christ, who were trying to live out their faith and practicing forgiveness, reconciliation, grace, and love in their homes. They weren't jerks. Number four, these children um, felt God. They felt him charismatically, just get, don't get nervous, and contemplatively. And by charismatically, there was something in a worship service or something in an event that they had a sense, an emotional sense that God is real. God is working. God is doing something. And then contemplatively, that back in their life, we prayed for this. God answered. We had a front row seat to God's grace in the lives of other people. Listen to me, parents. You want your kids to understand grace? Go get involved in ministry and let your kids watch God change the lives of other people. That was free. Okay? But they felt God. And finally, this 80% that made it, Bible, prayer, parents aren't jerks, feeling God, number five, they were attached to community. They were in the toddler class. They were in junior church. They were in the kids club. They were in the youth group. They went to camp. They had community. And so what I'm telling you this morning is we come across Elijah who grew up in a perverse, wicked culture, and yet his name means God is salvation. God, his salvation. Something was happening in that home. And my friend, listen to me, something has got to be happening in our homes. Or we're going to lose our kids. And if you hear this morning say, ah, stink, I've blown this already. Then stop. Stop now. And repent. And tell your kids, sorry, we've blown it. We've got to do what's most important. And then start doing it. His name meant God is salvation. Obviously, he had a spiritual family. Christian, moms and dads, this is our calling. And and you can, listen, you can talk about great youth groups, you can talk about great church, great... Your home is where it matters most. Because in your home, that's who you are. That's it. Your kids know, my kids know, warts and all, it's there. 
I'll move on. Back on trail again. Okay? Elijah, son of Shaphat, he was from Abel Mahola, which may not mean anything to you if you couldn't care less about biblical geography. It was near Beth Shean, which again doesn't mean anything to you, but it was, it was just south of the Sea of Galilee and near the Jordan River. This area was a farmer's heaven. They actually called it a rich meadowland. And so he grows up in an area where it just produces and produces and produces. He came from a wealthy family. How do you know that? Twelve yoke of oxen. That's a lot of oxen. That's not just a small little hobby farm. That's a big farm in these days. And he was plowing away. And the start of this young man's day was ordinary. But something is about to happen that will change him for the next 60 years of his life. It's a big deal. He's plowing away, routine, familiar, secure. And Elijah suddenly passes by and throws his mantle or his cloak upon him. It's, it's like this, all right? He's walking by, and he'd have a nice suit like this on. And here's Elijah, and he takes his mantle and he just throws it on top of him. It's weird to us. Maybe you don't understand that. Maybe it means nothing to you, but it wasn't weird for him. Because when he did that, when Elijah did that to Elijah, what he was saying is, listen, you, young man, follow me. You come after me. I am going to disciple you. And not only disciple you, as you read this account, as we go on, Elisha becomes like a son for Elijah. It's almost like an adopted spiritual father. And so here he's plowing. Elijah, the great prophet of Israel, walks by and throws his mantle upon him. Suddenly it happens. But let's just stop with the suddenly idea because this didn't just appear out of the blue. For Elisha, it seemed that way. But this was already set in motion. And I'm not even talking about, well, God knows the end from the beginning, which he does. We understand that. But this event, some 250 miles away, weeks earlier, God said to Elijah, listen to me, you go, find Elijah, and you anoint him to follow you. One writer said this, Suddenness is the wrapping paper in which sovereignty sometimes arrives. It seemed like it just happened out of the blue. It did not happen out of the blue. God had a purpose and a plan. And Elisha fully understood its meaning. He knew that he was being called to follow Elijah, and it was life-changing. And so here's what happens next. He kisses his parents goodbye. Elijah's response is kind of strange here. We don't understand exactly what he's saying. He says, hey, I'm going to go back and kiss my parents. Is that okay? And what he says in essence is, of course, you may. Um, what have I done to prevent this? And so he lets him go, but he kisses his parents goodbye. Then he kills the oxen. And he burns the instruments of plowing. He understood, You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, this is life-changing, This call has changed everything about me. I'm not going back to my old way of life. That is done. That is forever over. Not going back here. This is my calling. This was my career. It is no longer my career. I will follow Elijah. And then the crowd celebrates. And I love this celebration. They celebrate with a steak dinner. And this is not tube steaks. This is the real deal. This is Angus beef. You take the oxen, you kill the thing, and you have a delicious steak dinner. It was a wonderful occasion. The people there celebrated. 
Now, I want you to notice the last phrase of chapter 19. It says, And he arose, Elisha, and went after Elijah, and ministered unto him. I want to talk to you about that point this morning with just three points. Number one, this is it. Number one, I want you to notice a special call. There is a special call and a special case for Elijah. As students of the Word of God, as we look at the Bible in context, in its surrounding, as we know the story, I think we understand that this is a unique call. This is not just you and I. It's different. right? It's like Moses and Joshua. Moses, the great prophet of Israel, the greatest prophet, calls Joshua, lays his hand on him. He will now rule uh, or lead Israel as a nation. It's the same with Elijah. Elijah, other than Moses, is the greatest prophet of Israel, and now Elijah will have the privilege to follow in his steps. This is unique. This is not you. This is not me. We can't make it that. It's not that. It's different. But as unique as this call is, it is not unusual because it simply depicts what God is always entitled to do. And it's this. Command our obedience. God is always entitled to command our obedience. He says to Elijah, go anoint him. He says to Elisha, by the mantle casting on him, follow him. So it depicts what God is always entitled to do, command our obedience, and what we are always obligated to acknowledge. He has the right to do so. The God of heaven has the right to command our obedience, and it is our responsibility to acknowledge that he has that right. So, I'm not even talking this morning about the creator. You are a created being. There is a creator. You are commanded to obey him. I'm talking now to believers. Believers. We are obligated to follow his commands. Why, you might ask? Well, let me tell you why. Because we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. For starters. Because we were bought with a price. Not gold, not silver, not things that corrupt in God's eyes, but with the precious blood of Christ. We have been ransomed from the slave market of sin. Do you understand that? Believer, we were on a road to destruction. We were all like sheep who have gone astray. We turned our own way. We said, we will not have this man rule over me. I will be my own God. I will be my own man, my own woman. No one will tell me. We were enemy combatants to the will of God and on the road to destruction, death, and eternal damnation. That was you. That was me. And by God's grace, he, through the Son, paid the price and became the sacrificial atonement for you and for me. Christ died for you. Christ bought you, and he paid for you, and he paid for me with his blood. Therefore, he owns you. He owns you. He owns me. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6, 19? What? Talking to a church 
that was immature and worldly. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Listen to me. I know that this, this calling is unique. It is. But it is not unusual. Because in a sense this morning, for every believer, God has cast his mantle upon you in his love. He has lavished you with his grace, and he has called you to follow him. This is his right. We are obligated to understand and follow The eternal son says, follow me. And we are to obey and follow him. The Christian life is that simple. It is that simple. God says, obey, and and we say, yes, sir. We follow. Listen to what Will Borden said, and I'll introduce you to him in a moment if you don't know who he was. But he said this about obeying God. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Now, that might seem so um, simplistic. Can I tell you something? You ought to write that down. Like right now. You ought to write that down. You ought to say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. This is the Christian life. This is what it means that I've been bought with a price. I say no to myself and say yes to him. So, number one, a special call. It is unique, but not unusual. Number two, we see a sacrifice. A sacrifice. Watch what Elisha does. Number one, he kisses his affections goodbye. He kisses his mom and dad goodbye. We don't know how old he was, but he was young. Because he ministers for 60 years after this. He was a young man. Plowing. And before he leaves, he understands I'm going, and probably not coming back. And he kisses his parents. When I was 17 years old, I went off to the service, and I remember kissing my parents goodbye and kissing my um, wife-to-be goodbye. We'd be engaged for, I don't know, I was 17 we got engaged? Yeah, okay. So um, kissed her goodbye, and I, and I was only leaving for three months of basic training. Can I tell you, it was devastating. <clears throat> The first night, I got on a plane for the first time, flew to Fort Knox, Kentucky, got off, um, got onto a bus, and I got off at Fort Knox, Kentucky with this big, huge drill sergeant, six foot four, calling me names I'd never heard before. And I haven't heard since, actually. They're pretty creative. One of them was, come on, and the first night, In that bunk with 10 guys in the room, lights went off. They said, you're up at 4 o'clock in the morning. It was like, yeah, no one gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning. No, they were serious. Lights off at 8 o'clock. When the lights went off, here's what we heard out of 10 young men. The whole night long. These boys, myself included, were crying. Elijah kisses his family ties. Goodbye. This calling is so powerful in his life. He kisses his family ties goodbye. Number two, he kisses his security goodbye. The farm. Not only the family, but the farm. The farm was his future. 
I mean, they were a wealthy family. He could farm this thing. His future was secure. And yet, he kisses it goodbye. And not only kisses it goodbye, he burns the plow instruments. It's gone. I'm not going back to this. And then he kisses his comforts goodbye. Not only family and the farm, but the familiar. The familiar. Farmers, you know how it goes. Every day is the same thing, right? You get up, you do your thing, you farm. And, and this is bigger than we think. Like, no big deal. So it's familiar in his life. But it is a big deal. Because um, life is unpredictable. And yet the familiar, the things, the routines that we do... Give us the illusion that we got it under control. And so when you leave that, you go outside of your comfort zone, it's problematic. And all of these things can stand in the way of a whole-souled commitment to Jesus Christ. They're in our lives. This morning, believer, as we look at Elisha, are we willing to kiss our affections, our securities, and our comforts goodbye? For Christ's sake. I quoted Will Borden just a few moments ago. Does anyone know who Will Borden was? Does that sound familiar? Was Borden, okay, so in the States when I grew up, we had Borden Dairy. Did you have that in Canada, Borden's? Yeah, you did? Is someone lying? Is someone just saying yes because they don't know what to say? Yes, you had Borden's? Okay, you did, okay. Well, back long time ago in the early 1900s, the Borden's were Wealthy, I mean wealthy. And their son, Will, in 1904, graduated from Chicago High School. And the trip, that is the, the gift for graduation from high school was a trip around the world. So kids, hold on to that one. I mean, a trip around the world, graduation gift. Not, you know, not a watch, around the world. And so he went. As he went around the world, he saw the suffering in Asia and in the Middle East and desired to be a missionary. He came back home and told his friends, I think God's calling me to missions work. And his friends said, Will, you are throwing your life away. And the back of his Bible, he wrote these two words, no reserves. He was a devout believer in Christ. He knew what Christ had purchased him. He said, no reserves. He then went to Yale University. And at Yale University, he was spiritually miles ahead of students there. He started a prayer meeting and a Bible study, and at the end of his freshman year, 150 students were gathering together for prayer and Bible. By the end of his senior year at Harvard University, 1,000 of the 1,300 students were gathering for prayer and Bible reading. And upon graduation, he was offered unbelievable offers to make money. Unbelievable. And he turned them all down. And in the back of his Bible, under no, under no reserves, he wrote these two words, no retreat. He then went off to Princeton to finish his seminary work. And from Princeton, he got onto a boat on his way to China. But he was so concerned with ministering to the Muslim community that he stopped in Egypt, Cairo first. And while in Egypt, he contracted spiral meningitis, and one month later, at the age of 25, he was dead. They shipped his stuff back to the States. And as they went through his Bible, they looked at the flyleaf of the Bible, and they said, it said, no reserves. 
Underneath that it said, no retreat. And his final two words that he put in his Bible before his death was this, no regrets. No regrets. Um, i got to be honest. Don't you think, part of you think, what a waste. 25 years old. All, what a waste. And we, I think, me, I'm evil, I naturally think that. I, I do. I think, oh, my goodness, what a waste. That's my first initial thought. But then I remember this little statement that I read sometime in a great book. It said, he who will keep his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake in the gospel will keep it. And what I'm saying to you this morning is this. There are things that we sacrifice for that mean nothing. Nothing. Okay, nothing wrong with new houses, new cars, new clothes, better position, more money. Nothing wrong with those things. But listen to me. If that is all we are sacrificing for, if that's the extent of it, let me let you in on a little news. All of those things someday will be gone. All of them. They will be left for someone else. They will be gone. And the believer must understand that what we sacrifice for the kingdom of Christ will last forever. Forever. Maybe you're like me. In my heart, I have a desire. I think of man, Elijah and Elisha and these great stories of the Bible and great men and women who've, who've done something for Christ. And there's a sense that I want to do that. I'm a believer. They're, they're, my, the Spirit says, yes, you should. You should long for. And yet, I think we want to do that without any cost whatsoever. It's impossible. Luther said this, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. We have supported Ben and Sarah Lair for, oh, 15 years at least, our missionaries to Poland. I don't know if you know this, but Poland is uh, one of the least evangelized nations in the world. Right? They're in like the 2% compared to Muslim countries. They're right in there. And Ben and Sarah left to go there, and their first, their first uh, furlough home, it was so hard and so difficult that they were struggling with, what do we do with this? Do we go back here? Do we, do we stay here? I don't know what to do. And I'll never forget, Kim and I talking with them in a hotel room where we were staying, and, and they said, we don't know what to do. And then in a few moments, Ben just got very pensive. And if you know Ben Lair, you love him here. The wild, crazy hair goes up, and he does this. And, and he said, if Poland is going to be reached for Christ, somebody has to die. If the world will be reached for Christ, some, something has to die. Our desires, our plans, our dreams, our comfort, something must die. And Elijah understood it and would to God that God's people would understand it as well. We're called to sacrifice. And finally, this morning, we're called to service. That last phrase says that Elijah ministered unto him. Now think about this. If you're a young kid, and, and the greatest prophet in the land, right? He, he's a, 
he's a rock star. I mean, really, it, it's Elijah. He called fire down from heaven. This is the guy. And he throws his coat on you and says, follow me, kid. I got plans for you. You've got to be thinking, as Elijah, thinking, this is great, man. I'm going to be connected with the greatest prophet ever. And, and maybe I can organize the events. Maybe I'll be the planner. I'll get, get this thing organized. Or maybe I'll be the opening act at the crusade. And I can, I can sp- speak first, and I'll be elevated there. Or maybe I'll sit on the platform next to him at all of these services. This is fantastic. Wow, what a privilege. And then it says, he ministered unto him. You know what that word means? He serves him. That doesn't sound too exciting, does it? Wow, follow me. What do I get to do? Serve me. Great, I'm going home. And it gets worse. Years later, 2 Kings chapter 3, they're, they're speaking about a prophet. They're looking for a prophet. And Elijah now has been in ministry for a long time. And in the middle of the verse, it says, And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here is Elisha, the son of Shaphath, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. I'm pouring water on your hands. I'm the guy that gets to wash your hands. In Elijah's life, whether he's plowing or pouring, he's a servant. We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. We want to ascend in ministry. And whether that's in recognition or remuneration, and we end up being like James and John. Oh, God, I won't do that. But what I will do is I'll sit next to you on your throne. That, that's what I'm all good with that. Right? Or it's worse for us. We will be like the Most High God. Back to Genesis 3. That's in all of us. But I have to tell you something. God's command is that we sacrifice because much has been sacrificed for us and that we serve him. It's been said everybody wants to rule the world, but no one wants to do the dishes. Right? As a believer this morning, service is our part. When the Bible talks about you are servants of Christ, you are servants of God, that word literally is a slave. And the Bible makes it clear that this is our part. Look at Romans chapter 6 this morning. It says, but God be thanked, Paul speaking, that ye were the servants of sin. Listen to me. Don't, don't fool yourself. You and I will serve someone or something, right? Not, well, I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'll do. No, 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 no. You, you will serve one of two things. You will either serve sin or you will serve the Savior. There is no middle ground there. That's it. And, and one of those masters, are, he's a tyrant, because sin, when it is done, when it has used you for everything it can suck out of you, will chew you up and spit you away. Not so with the Savior. But Paul says, but God be thanked. You were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you have become the servants of righteousness. Right? Verse 22 of the same chapter. But now being made free from sin 
and become the servants of God. God buys us, he redeems us, and then he frees us. He frees us from sin and he frees us from ourself. The bondage of ourselves, our self-destructive nature and patterns, this is what he does. He does this from meaningless and emptiness. And then watch what happens. And become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness. As servants, we serve and we are sanctified. We are being changed. And then he says, and the end. And this is really strange to me. The end. Okay, you get to serve God and then the end. The end means it's, it's over. We talk about, well, that's the end of the program. That's the end of the service. That's the end of uh, a dynasty. That's the end of something. And what we mean by that is it's done. But here's what Paul says. To the servant of God, this idea of serving sanctifies us. It grows us. And then the end is everlasting life. My friend, there is no better deal than that. What makes it all worth it? The end. The end is not nothing. I know it's a double negative. The end is not nothing. The end is eternal life. It makes it worth it. And this is the lie that we battle against. In our battle in the Christian life, there are three things we battle. We battle Satan. And some people are, oh, yeah, Satan, the devil, yeah, yeah, whatever, that's a joke. It's funny to me. The world mocks God and Satan, and yet they're obsessed with demonic forces and spiritualism. Look at our movies. This world's a walking contradiction. They don't even know what they're talking about. Satan is real. He's out to destroy and to kill. He's a thief, a liar, and a robber. So we battle Satan. We do. We battle the world. Or the flesh first. We battle the flesh, which is, when you boil that down, it's selfishness. We all deal with our own selfishness. And then finally, we battle the world system. And what that means is this world system tells us that all that matters is right now. And that, my friend, is a lie. That's not all that matters because there is eternal life. So service is our part and service is our privilege. Revelation 22, look at verse 3. Revelation 22, 3. And there shall be no more curse. John is looking ahead to a day that's coming, and he says, no more curse. What's the curse? Everything that is bad. Everything that you can think of that is bad will be gone. Everything. Sickness, pain, suffering, tears, death, cancer, liver and onions, all gone. Gone. The curse is gone. It's over with. Which means the only thing that's left is that which is good. And look what he says in Revelation 22.3. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Do you get that? Do we have that revelation on the wall? Is that up there? It's good to see. I want you to see it. There it is. Servants will serve him. Do you understand that serving the God of heaven is the greatest privilege we can have? The greatest. The curse is gone. All that's left is good. And what he's saying is all service to God is good. If he's called you to pour water on someone's hands and you do it, you are doing the will of God. 
My friend, this morning, if God has called you as a man to lead your home, you're a man of integrity and character, and you work a job and provide and protect your family, and men, you ought to work a job and protect and provide for your family. You cannot feel good doing nothing. That's not your calling. But be a man of integrity and character and lead that home in a way that honors God. Lead the home like Christ loved his church. Can I tell you something? You are doing the will of God. You are serving the creator of heaven. It is good. If you're at home with kids, thinking, this is a death sentence. I can't wait till they're 18. Listen, after 18, they're still around. There's still something they need. It, it never ends. It is a death sentence. You're there. But the truth is, if I understand that God has placed me here at this point, point in time, in this moment with these children, I can, by the grace of God, raise them and teach them to sacrifice, teach them not to be selfish, teach them to love the Lord, and, and, and muster up an army of believers for the cause of Christ that we can shoot out to this world and make a difference. That's doing the will of God. If you're single this morning, and in this time and place in your life you're single, then by the will of God, do what he's called you to do. You have opportunities that others don't have. Use them for his glory. He calls you to sweep a floor, or to do a craft, or to watch kids in the nursery, or the toddlers, to teach, to give rides, to write notes, to make a meal, to clean the church. Do it. It's good. And my fear is that many of us, we go through this Christian life. Yep, God, you have the right to command. It's my obligation to acknowledge that and obey. And you've called me to sacrifice and service, but I'm busy, or I've got this going on. And we, we lose opportunities for the kingdom of Christ. This week, um, it's been busy. I mean, the whole church is busy. Everything's busy. But um, this week, there were at least four opportunities that came across my path that I knew, I knew there were opportunities to serve. I mean, it was, it was clear to me. It was really clear to me. And I have to tell you, the first one came by, and it's like, oh, I should do something. And it's like, nope. second one came by, I should do something. Nope. And then after I walked past the situation, I felt really bad about it. The third one came up, and I said, nope, I ain't doing that. And I knew, I mean, I knew God had placed me here. This is an opportunity. I'm a terrible person. I, I, I really am. And you, most of you know that. But on the fourth time, I got it right, and I knew I should do something. So I'm batting 25% this week. 25%. And I just thought to myself, how often in my life that God has commanded me to obey? And it's not rocket science, man. It's my spirit, my attitude. It's by giving that guy a ride, by helping someone with their groceries, by taking the guy in the wheelchair and putting him where he belongs, right? And he's called us to do this. He's called us to make sacrifices, and he's called us to serve. He has placed you in a place that no one else is at. And yet we're missing opportunities for his glory by not sacrificing, not serving. So this morning, it is a special calling. We see it. It is unique, but it's not unusual. God calls believers to obey. And we are to acknowledge that he has a right to do it. And in obeying, we are to sacrifice for him and to serve. So here's the challenge this week. Number one, are you obeying? Don't worry about the stuff you don't know in here. You better worry about the things that you do know and you don't do. Because we all got those. Are you obeying? 
Because you're making sacrifices. We're all making sacrifices. What are your sacrifices for? Again, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying we live in a world. I got it. But if there's never a sacrifice for the kingdom, what are we doing? And are you serving? Are you serving? Just serve. What God has called you to do, just do it. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.